They have so much power and have for a really long time. How can we demilitarize our democracy? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Perhaps the most essential element in the traditional identity of the United States of America in comparison with other countries is that we are a solid republic, which means of the people. Unlike our old mother country, we have no house of lords designed to serve and protect the interests of the hereditary ruling class. A republic is to serve us all, specifically and intentionally not a military dictatorship. And as the police in America are supposed to serve the common good of we the people who pay the taxes, that pay their salaries, civilians must never be expected to submit to anything like a ruling police state. Neither is our civilian government ever to be subservient to the military. Such an arrangement would horrify America's founders, all generations of patriotic Americans since, and most presidents. We are not now and never have been, and certainly must never become anything close to a military dictatorship. At great cost, we defeated such a threat in 1945. We were justly proud of our military after crushing fascism, and perhaps an unintentional result, the military was put on a pedestal which has prioritized their budget above all other aspects to our profound detriment. Of course, we all want and deserve national security. Okay, so how secure do you feel today? How secure is our democracy, for that matter? With us today is William D. Hartung, who is co-author of a new article on Tom Dispatch titled Demilitarizing Our Democracy, How the National Security State Has Come to Dominate a, quote, Civilian, unquote, Government. Bill, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Yes, good to be back. Bill Hartung is director of Arms and Security Program Center at Inter- Center for International Policy. He's also served as senior research fellow in the New America Foundation's American Strategy Program and as former director of the Arms Trade Resource Center at the World Policy Institute. He's contributed to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, The Nation, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Mother Jones. He is a critic, unsurprisingly, of the war on terror on the basis that it does not... It does not quell the political powerlessness and frustration that fuels terrorism in the Middle East or anywhere. Yeah, it isn't working. That seems pretty clear. As your article points out, the government reform organization Public Citizen tweeted, if you're spending $740 billion annually on defense, but fascists dressed for the Renaissance Fair can still storm the Capitol as they please, maybe it's time to rethink national security, end of their quote. Reagan, Bush, and Trump successfully whipped up fear of a weak military unable to defend us from terrorist attacks like 9-11. And since 1980, as you say, almost the only subject the two parties in Congress can agree on is putting up ever more money for the Pentagon. Their budget has become like a sacred cow. 
It must be worshipped, even though its value in terms of actually keeping us and our republic safe is negligible. I wonder how much this has to do with an overreaction to perceived disrespect of our military after the war in Vietnam. Your thoughts, how did, how did the uh, Pentagon and the military budget become such a sacred cow? Well, I think part of it is fear, uh, you know, just spreading it's fear of terrorism. It was fear of communism. There's even now, you know, on the right calls of, you know, we have to keep socialism out of our country and so forth. So I, th- I think it's kind of coupling that sense of fear, which has been exaggerated in many respects and understated in others, um, with the notion that the military can solve it. Uh, and, I, and I do think a lot of people, there, there's a divide between the military and civilian uh, societies just because a relatively small part of our country fights the wars. Uh, and there, uh, to some degree, it's, it's more chosen towards people of color, or to some degree, uh, people from rural areas, working class backgrounds. So I think there is probably just a sense of, well, these are the people that are putting their lives on the line, therefore, they deserve our respect. I think that, you know, that's perfectly fine. I I think the problem comes when you look to military leaders as the arbiters of every possible question that we have in front of us, Uh, you know, be it, uh, they've even opined on, you know, certainly how to deal with immigration, um, how to deal with, there's even money in the Pentagon to deal with reproductive rights issues. Mm. There's, uh, you know, there's just a whole range of topics where, people search for what they call military validators, uh, people who used to have a stripe on their shoulders uh, to somehow give credence mm. to arguments that should be able to stand on their own. And often on subjects where there's people who actually are experts, scientists, educators, healthcare professionals, who are the ones we should be listening to first. Uh, and yet because the military, and a lot of that is the public has invested them with this power. Uh, if you look at polls, you know, they'll often say, the military is the most trusted institution. Yeah. Congress comes in at, you know, 10% right around the same level as used car dealers. I don't know if anybody <laughs> buys used cars anymore, but that sort of thing. And this this validator thing, that's, that's really interesting, I think. I mean, I, f- I do find it curious that, you know, uh, Hollywood movie stars and, and singers get asked to express their views on all kinds of political and social uh, topics, even though they're not skilled to do that at all. And I do wonder, you know, I lived through the uh, Vietnam era, and my sense is that this is a, a swing directly opposite from the perception that there was at the time that, that you know, the, our military was was disrespected, that uh, greatly exaggerated story of uh, veterans coming back from Vietnam being spit on, uh, which may or may not be true. But is this a swing in the opposite direction from that? I, I wonder if, if that has something to do with the, uh, uh, you know, heroic uh, picture that's put on all things military. I think there may be an element of that. Um, it's interesting because, of course, uh, the anti-war movement ranks were swelled by veterans. True. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of them having experienced what was really going on in Vietnam yes. uh, turned against the war. 
but in, in this other narrative about how the troops were disrespected by the peace movement, that kind of falls out of the conversation. Um, and I do think there was this sort of move among elites and, and pushed by the military and others that we had to get past what they called the Vietnam syndrome, right. which was this very reasonable public suspicion of getting involved in foreign wars was kind of spun as if it was some sort of, you know, psychological flaw mm. in the body politic. Uh, and I think, you know, along with that, you had uh, changes in both parties, you know, the democratic party, uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore came up to the democratic leadership council. Yes. And their, their kind of argument was if we're going to win elections, we got to show we're tough on defense. We got to show we're able to only use force. We got to show we're tough on crime. So there was a kind of explicit conservative current within the party, um, and I think that also probably fit into this notion of elevating the military onto a pedestal, as you put it. And they, uh, they, you know, of course, the way the military is, uh, is structured across the country, there are. Uh, military-related uh, manufacturing plants in pretty much every congressional district. That seems like that's there for a reason. It, it's very difficult. I mean, for example, this show is coming at you from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We have the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, which repairs uh, nuclear submarines. And the reality is those jobs could be, uh, instead of losing the jobs there, they, they could be uh, changed to working on big, heavy train cars and railroads and other transportation issues. But, uh, you know, they just play on the, on the fear of, of losing the jobs, and you got to have a strong military, of course. You don't dare criticize the military. I think that's an interesting point about Gore and, uh, and Clinton as well. It was just uh, kind of putting their fingers to the wind, so the Democrats and Republicans, both, as we mentioned uh just do anything the Pentagon wants and support the budget, oftentimes giving them things that they don't even ask for. Now, the war on terrorism, certainly it played on fear. And as obviously fear is one of the most powerful political motivators, if not the most. Uh, is it your sense that most Americans feel that trillions of our dollars that have been spent have been worth it? What do you think? I think that notion is taking a big hit. Um, I mean, the post-9-1-1 wars, hundreds of thousands have died on all sides of those conflicts. Uh, we've got hundreds of thousands of veterans dealing with PTSD and traumatic brain injuries, not to mention those who lost their lives, lost limbs, and so forth. Um, so there's been a huge domestic cost. And uh, the cost of war project at Brown University estimates that all the different aspects of the cost of those wars add up to $6.4 trillion, which could address things like Medicare for all, could make our entire electrical grid uh, run on alternative energy, sure. could have addressed big challenges that we're now scrambling to, to deal with. So I think, you know, even in Trump country, um, you know, you may remember he had a lot of rhetoric about how you know, great countries don't fight endless wars and I'm going to get us out of Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. Of course, he didn't do that. No. And in fact, he, he doubled down on some of the other tactics like drone strikes, special forces, 
Uh, he took the gloves off in terms of any kind of restrictions that would limit civilian casualties and so forth. So there was a high degree of hypocrisy there. But the reason he felt the need to do it was because a lot of people in his base were tired of these wars. They had war fatigue. Mm -hmm. And many of the um, areas that elected him were where the vets came from. So they had seen these wars up close, and they knew that they didn't serve the purpose that we were told uh, you know, they were being fought for. So I, I do think there's, there's real skepticism now about that. Um, but the question is how to translate that skepticism into changes in policy. Uh, and I think we're still fighting that. And part of that is, as you said, the um, military-industrial complex. Uh, we discussed in our article how, um, you know, retired military folks who are also on the payrolls of defense contractors mm -hmm. are turned to by the media, media turns to them as experts to tell us what's going on in the world, to define kind of what the challenges are to the country. Um, so we've still got a lot to, to deal with, but I, I think the fact that people don't automatically assume that war is the answer, um, I think is important. You know, the, I work a lot with the Friends Committee on National Legislation and uh -huh. the sort of Quaker Peace Movement. And their banner is war is not the answer, which of course is the common sense uh, truth that we need to kind of hold on to at all times. But, but uh, for many people in our country, they just assumed, well, you know, the military is what keeps us safe. And, and I think that has not been the case. Uh, in these recent decades. Well, I, I, I'm glad to hear that uh, when there's 330 million people, the change in attitude is often slow in coming, and uh, the people lead much more often than the leaders follow. So um, it's good to hear that, that, that people are becoming more uh, skeptical of that. And, you know, I do wonder about, uh, you know, democracy, as they say, is not a spectator sport. It requires participation. So it's much easier, especially with everything that's going on with, you know, the 24-7 and people are busy trying to survive all the time, to just let the military leaders, uh, you know, they, they can... Like Trump appeared to be, I think, to many people, like, you know, he's the hero. He's been on those flags uh, placed on... Uh, on a real tough body uh, and you know that he's going to be the guy who can rescue us somebody come in and fix it and I'm, I, I think that that's it's a lot easier to let somebody do that than to actually participate in decision making and yet as you point out what I mean what is national security <laughs> if you know they didn't the Trump administration I think uh, the only thing they cared about uh, with regard to the COVID-19 was how it might affect his uh, election uh, chances. It seems like nothing was done whatsoever. So what kind of uh, national security is that? And in terms of, you know, the money that we're putting out, the fact that Democrats and Republicans just fall all over themselves still, even though, as you say, military uh, veterans are saying, hey, you know, we've seen this stuff. It, it isn't working. And more and more of them are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan saying just that. So as taxpayers, lots of times we care about getting a, a decent bang for the buck, as they say. We prefer that money is well spent and is achieving the attended results. And as you say, the Pentagon continues to be funded at staggering levels, when they sit down before congressional funding committees, 
What victories to bolstering, uh, effectively bolstering our national security, can they point to? How do they convince the the uh, the fund funding uh, decision makers? I think part of it is kind of can you prove a negative? You know, well, there hasn't been another nine one one. Right. Uh, but there have been terrorist incidents in our country. Most of them, however, yeah. have been carried out by white supremacist groups. Yes. Uh, by the you know the overwhelming majority of them, which has not been viewed by our security institutions as a problem. In fact, as we talk about in the article, uh, there is a problem of racism within the security state. Uh, and some of the people who attacked the Capitol, of course, were. Uh, veterans, there were retired police, there were people who, who were out of that cohort who were supposed to be protecting the country, and they were actually assaulting democracy. So, um, you know, I, th- I think the other thing is, you know, I, I think all the, the uh, arguments are really either things could have been worse if we didn't have a large military, or just pivot to the threat du jour, you know, because now it's about China and Russia, great power competition. And even though, as they acknowledge, perhaps the war on terrorism uh, did not go perfectly, which is a huge yeah. understatement. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that is what it is. But now we've got this bigger threat. You know, China's going to take over the world and we need to have aircraft carriers. We need better nuclear weapons. We need hypersonic weapons. We need to master artificial intelligence. We need armed robots. Uh, we need to beef up our cybersecurity potential. Um, or China is going to eat our lunch, and they're going to be making the rules in the world, and we're going to be sort of cowering in our little corner, taking dictates from Beijing. Mm. Um, you know, and of course not. You know, the, the sort of responsible, quote unquote, members of the establishment don't go quite that far, but that's. A lot of people, that's in their mind. In fact, there was a New York Times uh, podcast where they interviewed uh, people who believed that the election had been stolen, kind of diehard Trump supporters. One of them started out sounding somewhat reasonable. And by the end of her discussion, she said, well, 100,000 Chinese troops are going to come to make sure Joe Biden gets inaugurated and they're not going to leave. You know, so the, there's that's the like the fantastical end of it. Yeah. And then the the more sort of mainstream end of it, which it has some purchase in both parties. It's just yeah. China is the rival of the future. They're going to set the rules for the world if we don't stand up to them. And unfortunately, their idea of standing up to them often involves spending more on the military, uh, not, not having a sophisticated strategy or how the United mm-hmm. States can play a constructive role in the world and preserve some level of prosperity and reinvigorate democracy and so forth. But kind of just leaning on that military instrument as if it's going to solve all these problems. Uh, Twas ever thus. It, uh, interesting. And I, I've, I've seen uh, a lot of Trump people, some of my old friends, uh, saying, oh, China, Biden's going to be just a, you know, the uh, lapdog for China. And it's interesting how, as you say, there's always a threat du jour. I I never liked Russia. I don't think Putin is a nice guy whatsoever. And there are thousands of people out in the streets who are against Putin. And somehow he's okay. I don't know. China is the new uh, uh, greatest threat that we have. And it's a way to, yeah, this is what we can do to keep funding our military. For those who may have just tuned in, our guest today, returning guest is William Hartung, 
who has written a new article called Demilitarizing Our Democracy, How the National Security State Has Come to Dominate a Civilian Government. And, I mean, you talk about real threats to America, to our stability. There was the most serious assault on the foundation of our republic, at least since 9-11, if not since Pearl Harbor, of course, on January 6, 2021. The, those participants were violent. Five people were killed. They threatened to kill the Speaker of the House and hang the vice president. Real terrorists, real terrorists attacked the foundation of our country. And I wonder about the level of fear of these insurrectionists who actually did and still do pose a threat to our real national security. I wonder how they're seen by the majority. Are they seen as a national security threat? How do you see those dynamics playing out? I think that's a fascinating uh, place to be as we move forward. Well, I think here's where the divisions really get in the way. I mean, substantial plurality, not not a majority, but close to it, of Republicans believe, A, the election was stolen, and a somewhat smaller number think that the um, attack on the Capitol was justified in some fashion. So you've got that. Certainly there's not a lot of support among independents and Democrats for that point of view. But of course, it doesn't take uh, that many people in these kinds of organizations to pose a real threat. I mean, you know, you've got armed groups that think they have the right to do things like kidnap the governor of Michigan. Right. Uh, the things that, that you mentioned that they said as part of the attack on the Capitol. Um, but so, you know, I, I think the conversation should, there should be more conversation about that than about, you know, what is China going to do to America? What is America doing to itself? Mm. Good point. But I wonder where that is right now. I mean, the Republican Party is, torn between uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene on one hand, the one who says uh, just these bizarre, you know, anti-American, in my opinion, things, and uh, Liz Cheney, and which way they'll go, who knows? But does, if, I think a lot depends on if the public in general sees these insurrectionists as a danger, as a threat. I'm not convinced that they do now. Maybe that will happen over time. And you point out that some political figures want the uh, January 6th rioters tried in military, not civilian courts. What, can, I don't get the logic to that. What, what's your sense on that? I don't fully understand the logic. I think the notion is somehow military courts are, you know, more efficient in uh, bringing people to some, you know, version of justice. Um, but I think you know, we need to bolster and uh, improve our civilian court system because that's, you know, a, co- a co-equal branch of government. Yes. And we shouldn't be doing an end run around it, uh, especially when it's something that's so directly uh, threatens our democracy as a whole because the democracy, one of the pillars is the civilian court system. Yeah, well, I, I hope they can be tried there and it'll be interesting to see how public opinion comes down on that. Um, And you talk about the power, the belief in the military to save us. Many people, myself included, I will admit, 
in great concern that Trump would never physically leave the White House, that he'd actually, you know, uh, keep himself in there, many of us looked with hope to the military to protect America and get the job of removal done. Your thoughts on that? Yes, there was actually an article by two ex-military folks who explicitly said that the head of the Joint Chiefs had a responsibility to physically remove Trump from office if he refused to leave. Um, I understand the emotions behind that because there was there were some moments there where people really wondered, is this guy going to go? Um, I think my concern was more the reverse. You know, in, in countries where there have been coups, when people have kind of abandoned electoral democracy, pointed themselves present for life and so forth, they've generally had factions of the military behind them. And I didn't think that was the case. So I, I sort of viewed it as more of a hands-off situation that the military not interfere one way or the other. And we, we got through that. But I think the bigger yeah. problem now are the, the shock troops, you know, the people who support Trump, supported the notion that he never should have left office. And what are they going to do next? I, I think yeah. people who maybe aren't as concerned about the attack on the Capitol maybe think it was a one-time event mm-hmm. uh, and that, you know, the security officials weren't prepared and that's not going to happen again. These people go about to justice. That'll be the end of it. But it's ingrained in significant sectors of our society. And it's, you know, it has long roots, um, you know, going back to the kind of the structural racism that the country's founded on. So yeah. I'm not so confident that, that it's a, it's a one-off event. Um, and so the, the question is how to deal with it. And I, I don't think we've had that, conversation in a mm. you know full enough fashion it will be interesting to see if there are other i'd be shocked if there weren't other uh things done by the the q and the proud boys which by the way just got labeled as a terrorist organization by canada uh i i, I can't believe that this is a one-off that they i expect that they will do it again and what that will do to public opinion and with regard to uh what national security really is and who is our enemy? Who is more of a threat to the United States? Is it China or is it these anti-democratic, with a small d, uh, people who support an authoritarian uh, white nationalist uh, government imposing its brand of religion on us? I don't know. I mean, it's it we're such a huge country with many different, I think, sub-nations. Uh <laughs> What what is the uh, you know changing the perception of what national security is and what role the military can and should play? And as you've said, there there so many people uh, you know the military has such a heightened standing in our society. Elected leaders often look to the leaders of the military on issues which you say are quite outside the military's purview. I, I I'm still. Why is it that the civilian leaders fall all over themselves, seeking the stamp of approval from the military elite? How is it that if the military brass supports something, it gains instant credibility? Should I not be reminded of the old Prussian state in which the military is basically a religion? Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, as we mentioned in the parenthesis in the article, We've done that ourselves. I mean, you know, you turn to military validators to oppose torture or to say, 
uh, you know, the, the latest arms control agreement that will keep the country safe. I mean, at least in some of these areas, it, it relates to military expertise. Uh, but I think even so, the military is supposed to be under civilian control. Our foreign policy should be made by civilians. Um, yes. And that's got its own issues because we've had sort of this hawkish uh, segment, which, which got us into things like the Iraq war. And in some cases, military leaders actually were trying to put on the brakes. Yeah. For that. But no, nonetheless, um, you know, I, I think military leadership has its place, but it should be kept in its own lane. Uh, and they shouldn't be, uh, I think, I think, that, you know, the one interesting thing is in, in the context of the pandemic, there's sort of this new notion of heroes, huh. the, the nurses and doctors on the front line, the grocery workers, the people who deliver the packages, right. the, the people who are producing food and kind of keeping the society running at great risk to themselves. And I think that's an interesting phenomenon because it, at least it recognizes that there's other values in the society and it's, it's not just about honoring the military. So I'll be interested to see if that persists or if it's, it's really just kind of of the moment. Oh, interesting. Oh, that will be interesting to see how it moves over time. All these places putting the red cross flag out there to honor our, uh, our heroes in the pandemic. And that's true. They are really keeping us safe and, uh, doing it more than the military one might perhaps say and i i you know in terms of civilian control over the military i'm reminded of the near fisticuffs between general macarthur and president truman regarding military policy in korea truman fired macarthur and that was very controversial you know, the the country was kind of split on which side they were on. I wonder where we are as a nation now in terms of unquestioned need for civilian control of the military. That's kind of a scary prospect to to that the people might not want that. Maybe they want the other way around. Your thoughts, Bill? It's it's such an interesting period uh, because our former president, um, such as he was, um, on the one hand said, "I know more than the generals." You know, uh, and he also he criticized the intelligence community and many other parts of the security apparatus of the deep state who were conspiring to, you know, undermine his uh, presidency and so forth. So there was kind of that countercurrent. Uh, on the other hand, he appointed General Mattis as his secretary of defense, who also came from the board of general dynamics. Mm. Uh, all of his secretaries of defense uh other than the one who served a few months at the end there, um, came out of the arms industry, from Raytheon, from General Dynamics, from Boeing. Um, so at the same time that he was, on one hand, denigrating the military leadership, saying, I know best, uh, he was also recruiting a lot of those same folks, either from the arms industry or the military itself, to run his government. So uh, I don't know where that leaves us. I think we're hopefully starting fresh, but um, mm. there is, you know, there was, there was that the sort of dueling uh, laundry lists during the campaign of who could get more military national security officials to endorse them, mm. uh, Biden or Trump. So that's, that's still out there. There's still this notion that, that these, these are the people you should look to 
uh, not just about military matters, but also about who should run the country. Well, the whole patriarchy thing just it rubs me the wrong way. I have to say that uh, you know, just letting the military—they know better. Just you know, don't don't think about it yourself. They'll they'll think about it. They'll figure it out. They know how to be uh, more efficient. Um, and you talk about the revolving door between military service and working for military contractors. That's been going on and known about for decades. What is the continuing problem there, and why does it remain without real question? Why does it keep going on just completely uninterrupted? I, I, I'm confused about that. Well, it's interesting because certainly Eisenhower was aware of that and it contributed to his uh, giving the military industrial complex speech. Right. Uh, William Proxmire, who was a great gadfly and uh, you know kind of advocate for the public. Yes. pointed it out, as you mentioned, decades ago. And I think he got at one element of it. It's not just that uh, generals cash in by going to work for contractors and then they use their contacts in government to carry water for those contractors and get them a better deal and sort of influence policy on their behalf. But even before they leave, as Proxmore pointed out, if if you're thinking, well, what am I going to do next when right. I retire? And what you want to do next is work for General Dynamics. Then you're not going to give them a hard time while you're in government yeah. um, because you want to curry favor with them. So I think it, it has a very deep influence on how the government operates and what kind of, kind of political leeway these companies are allowed. Mm. Does kind of remind me of what I read about the Prussian state. Just you know, they run the show and everything else that goes along with that. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're talking about demilitarizing our democracy with our returning guest William D. Hartung, who is director of the Arms and Security Program Center for International Policy, and uh, knows a lot about such military type things. When military leaders go before the press, it's it's just a given that they're not about to tell us everything. You know, they got to hold a lot of things back. In setting that example, what what does it do to expected accountability on the part of other government spokespeople? Do Americans no longer care about what LBJ experienced? The credibility gap does that not matter anymore? Does credibility count for anything? And, you know, if everybody's keeping secrets and not giving the truth, wow, what about that? I think it still matters to a lot of people. Uh, but there's this whole other strain of thought that's basically kind of my side is right and facts are impervious. And I think it's, mm. it's more evidence uh, with the Trump phenomenon. Um but I, I think it's true. If you look at the post-9-1-1 wars, there's increasing uh, tightening of what kind of information is available, uh, you know, on civilian casualties, casualties among our own troops, uh, how exactly the money is being spent, even on some small matters. Like I, I track um, global arms trade, who's the United States arming, mm. and what are the consequences of those weapons being used. Uh, some of the basic information that used to exist about that is no longer being provided. So it's harder to say, you know, we've been arming X country for 
15 years and was running this amount of weaponry. Look how that's ended up. Even even some of that basic, uh, mm. you know, grounding that you could use to try to evaluate policies has been uh, pulled back. So I, I think there's there's secrecy and there's also just a general uh, unwillingness to provide basic information that people would need to decide what they think about our role in the world, what, what consequences do our policies have, you know. Yeah, and I think of uh, the Saudi war on Yemen. You know, the people there, throughout the Middle East, are fully aware that none of that would be happening without the U.S. supplying them with guidance systems and with the bombs. And it's a terrible situation. And if Americans knew, maybe they'd object to it. But I don't, I mean, people don't even think about that. Yemen, what? They've been kept in the dark and seem to just want to uh, accept that. And that's, I think that's gotten worse over the years, that uh, you know people are accepting not knowing. Geez, maybe it's better not to know. Sounds like you're about to say something. Yeah, I think um, on the Yemen issue, there's been more activism uh, in recent years. Uh, Congress voted down some arms sales to Saudi Arabia, yes. only to be vetoed by uh-huh. uh, President Trump. Uh, uh, Biden on the campaign trail said we would no longer check our values at the door and would not enable the Saudi war in Yemen. Nice. He's now suspended uh, to under review bomb sales to the UAE and, and uh, Saudi Arabia. So there, there may be some hope there yep. to change at least that policy. But it's, you know, it's so egregious and it's so clear that we shouldn't be supporting it. Uh, there's not really a lot to be said on the other side, except <laughs> they say, well, you know, the, the Houthi rebels that the Saudis are fighting are, you know, um, supported by Iran. Uh, but in fact, they were, uh, they've, they've had their own grievances in that country of for course. decades uh, because they've been excluded politically. Uh, they've had to deal with corrupt governments. And they fought many wars before the Saudis got involved and before Iran came to the assistance to um, some degree to the Houthis. So, it's not really about Iran, but it's right. been kind of stuffed into that Mideast Cold War lens, uh, much to the detriment of the people of Yemen. Interesting how many things are stuffed into frames, like uh, Vietnam was stuffed into the frame of the Cold War. didn't fit, and it, it did not help us at all, I don't think. I mean, you know, 58,000 Americans died, and, you know. And, and with regard to Saudi Arabia and Yemen, you know, one could look at it from a, gosh, what we're doing there isn't particularly ethical. But I think w- what is even more uh, perhaps important is that it's not good for us. We're not gaining from it. It hurts us strategically in that region to be doing that. It's not in our benefit. It doesn't help us to do that, never mind any kind of moral argument. And speaking of morals, the military culture, tragically, uh, it it can't surprise too many people that there are rapes in the military facilities, white male domination by totally legitimized physical force. A great many of the insurrectionists had military backgrounds or were still active. White nationalism, white male nationalism may not be an official component of the military and the militarized police, but... If such a uniquely powerful institution keeps secret information about white nationalists 
in their ranks, and the politicians and the public are highly reluctant to question the esteemed military. Uh, I wonder how much trouble we're in and about that that whole situation of, uh, you know, white male domination. And then, you know, how surprised can people be that there are rapes when it's kind of part of their culture? And how does that uh, affect, I mean, there's a lot of women in the world, in America. How does that affect our national security, our actual national security? Well, for a long time, um, internationally and elsewhere, that there was this notion of human security, which was basically mm. saying, what is the actual effect on people's lives of various activities? And if you look at it more broadly, then you, you would see that uh, the pandemic, uh, violence against women, white supremacy, uh, the climate crisis, there are many things that are more immediate and long-term threats to people's lives than China or Russia or the sort of traditional military boxes that are defined as national security. Um, I, I was encouraged that um, in the confirmation hearings for Lloyd Austin to be Secretary of Defense mm -hmm. and Kathleen Hicks to be his deputy, uh, the issue of violence against women in the military was um, prevalent in the yeah. conversation. Good. And also that Austin said he would address the issue of racism in the ranks. Now, of course, this is one could say this is late in the game, uh, given how long this has persisted. But I, I hope that this time there's, there's real measures taken. Uh, I think it's certainly on the agenda for conversation in a way that it hasn't been uh, for quite a while. So perhaps the, you know, in the wake up calls of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the military uh, may be getting more serious about starting to address its own white supremacy problems. That's, that's reassuring. Meanwhile, we have our our police and the militarization of police, the Department of Homeland Security uh, has, I never did like that title, has, has been uh, sending military weapons to local police. And of course, the local police grab it up. Fun toys. Blue Lives Matter. We've heard that. Our American flag. You may have seen it. Have you? Uh, the American flag was kind of vandalized, I think, with the blue stripe inserted over a white one. I'm concerned with how widely that is accepted. How much of that is part of what we're talking about? Why, why is that so strong across the country? And how dangerous is this militarization of police to our democracy? Is it an aspect of the same problem that we've been talking about? I think it's related in a sense of just the notion that you're going to solve issues through force, uh, that the people on the receiving end of that violence are too often people of color, uh, whether it be our adventures overseas or the way police conduct themselves at home. Um, and of course, you've got that weapons pipeline that you talked about, either used equipment transferred from the Pentagon or money given through grants by the Department of Homeland Security. And, you know, once people are dressed up in military gear, They've got armored personnel carriers, and they've got SWAT teams. Um, there comes a point where, you know, as President Obama said, it it comes to feel like, uh, as a citizen, uh, particularly in communities of color, that 
mm-hmm. the police are more an army of occupation than a protection force. Yes. So I think it, it does definitely interconnects, and there's been some push to uh, end the Pentagon program, which is called 1033, that transfers uh, military weaponry to local yeah. state police departments. And there's been some progress in that regard, and the Biden administration has an executive order that would restrict some elements of it, but I think what really needs to happen is that program should not exist. And there is there are legislative initiatives to push in that direction that have broad support, uh, but we're not there yet. Uh, and of course, that's not the only issue because obviously uh, George Floyd was killed with somebody putting their knee on his neck, not because the right. uh, Minneapolis police had military equipment. So it, it wouldn't solve yeah, the true. whole problem, but I think it would be it would be a, a piece of it of kind of breaking that kind of military lens that we look at both in terms of domestic and international security. And I, it makes me think of a quote, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, instead of uh, sending the swords, the military swords down to the local police, they could beat them into plowshares. What a concept. Huh. And it never used to be that there were military flyovers and salutes uh, at to the military at sporting events. And now it's it's uh, nearly ubiquitous. In, in your view, what is the significance of this military flyover and salutes to the military now being expected at these events? What, in what way is that significant, do you think? It just reinforces that notion that we're, you know, we should be saluting the military over and above other institutions in our society. And, um, you know, there's, there's um, an interesting twist this year. They're going to um, give free Super Bowl tickets to uh, nurses who've been vaccinated. Um, of course, it might be more valuable to maybe give them better working conditions, better pay than a Super Bowl ticket. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're Okay. You know that maybe that's too radical. You know? <laughs> uh, but there is this kind of, you know, that there's that little opening of well, there's other kinds of heroes here, but you know, are they going to be, you know, if it really was taken to heart, we'd be investing more in public health yes. than we are in weapons of destruction, and we're not doing that. So, uh, you know, is that an opening to? to have that conversation about kind of putting our money where our rhetoric is when it comes to these, this new recognized category of heroes. Yeah. And you would think with nearly 450,000 Americans dead from this thing, you know, that I would think is a little bit of a threat to uh, our national security, to put it mildly for those who may have just tuned in Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive and we're talking about demilitarizing our democracy, how the national security state has come to dominate a civilian government. Our guest, returning guest, is William Hartung, who's uh, been at this for quite a while, writes all over the place, uh, Bulletin of Amer- Atomic Scientists, The Nation, New York Times, Washington Post, etc., etc. And you write that similarly, both former President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden have been have identified the military as a key future player in distributing the COVID-19 vaccine. 
parenthetically, I want my vaccine. Okay, uh, and please tell us about the $1 billion in supposed pandemic relief that went to defense contractors. What does this say about our public health institutions? I, I, what's this $1 billion that was uh, shifted away from pandemic relief to defense contractors? Well, you know, the, the notion was the military can get the job done, the defense industry can produce the protective equipment we need, and it didn't play out that way. Uh, you know, that some of it went to actual traditional weapon systems. Uh, some of it went to producing equipment for protection that wasn't adequate to the job. Uh, and the amounts were not nearly up to uh, speed. I, I think, you know, we, we need to build civilian institutions. I mean, you know, oh, the National Guard's going to help us distribute vaccines. Why don't we have a public health system that's able to do that? You know, why would we need to rely on the military for this? And, you know, the Pentagon has uh, a five-year budget plan that they put out. Uh, they've got more than half the discretionary budget. They've got the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which takes billions and billions of dollars to cook up ideas for new weapon systems. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control, National Institutes of Health, go wanting local public health agencies don't get the kind of aid they need. You know, we should have a national public health plan that should be getting even a fraction of the money that goes to the Pentagon that should have a vision of how to solve these problems so it's not kind of ad hoc crisis management uh, for something that's foreseeable, you know. Yeah, if we can't figure out, just let the military do it. That seems to work, sort of. Uh, is Was there a problem? I mean, I, I like... Uh, what you were saying before about uh, retired General Lloyd Austin III to be Secretary of Defense. He seems to have some good things in mind. But they had to get a waiver to uh, approve his nomination to be Secretary of Defense. Why? And what does that say about civilian control of the military? I mean, that waiver was about keeping civilian control, was it not? Is there a danger in you know, having that just waived so easily? I think so. Uh it hadn't happened until James Mattis got a waiver to be Trump's Secretary of Defense. It hadn't happened since George Marshall, uh, you know, at the end of the um, Second World War. of World War II. So it hadn't happened twice in such a short period of time. I mean, the notion was, you know, let's at least make sure they've been out of the service for seven years before they come in to run the Pentagon, which is supposed to be under civilian control. Right. So it sort of makes it seem like, well, is there nobody else up to the job? Um, I mean, it's mm. the management job. It has to do with strategy. It has to do with fitting the military into our broader foreign policy. Um, there should be plenty of candidates who don't have to be ex-generals who could carry out that work. Uh, now, to his credit, Austin has said he's going to recuse himself from any decisions involving Raytheon, where he served on the board uh, for his full four years in office. But, um, you know, that's not enough, in my opinion. I mean, I think we should have civilians joining the Pentagon. I think now that Austin is there, yeah, we'll have to the rest of it. see how he conducts and, you know, judge him on the merits. But I think as a matter of course, we shouldn't be making those decisions of having... Ex-generals run the Pentagon. 
yeah, or former defense executives, for that matter. Yeah, that whole revolving door thing. Hmm, it is a problem. And I read recently, uh, now actually, Myanmar, the former Burma, a military coup has happened. Many uh, are in detention, including the person who won overwhelmingly a democratic election. And Trump openly adored military dictators across the world. I wonder how much this has to do with or reflects the normalizing and spreading of the legitimacy of such sentiment here that, uh, you know, dictatorships, Trump certainly supported it. I don't think he met a dictator he didn't like unless it was a socialist. But uh, what about that uh, Myanmar military coup? And it, it seems so like some people would want something like that here. I think there are some people who feel like democracy is messy, things don't get done, it's inefficient. It is. I don't know what the numbers are. Right. You know, I don't know what the numbers are. But um but there's certainly some people who probably would opt for an authoritarian system if they thought uh well A it reflected their values and of course some of those values are horrific. Uh and B that somehow it could move more quickly to address uh, the problems of the moment. So I think, you know, we, we need to reinvigorate our democracy in the midst of all this. And I think the, the kind of the two poles that you see, on the one hand, you see the attack on the Capitol mm-hmm. and the attack on the legitimacy of the election. On the other hand, you see what happened in Georgia, yes, uh, where there was probably unprecedented citizen involvement in turning around, uh, you know, the political system in a state with a long history of voter suppression against people of color. So uh, it's, it's, it's sort of like the, the battle has been joined. Uh-huh. Uh, authoritarianism versus a, a, a more uh, perfect or at least a, a more vigorous and, and true uh, democracy. So I, I think that's, that's going to be the story of these next years, is, is which of those tendencies mm. gets the upper hand. Wow, yeah, and they're two strong tendencies, I think. And as another guest on the show said, the, 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 the term United States of America is more aspirational than a name for their country. We are still trying to create a more perfect union. Well, you say it's time to rethink national security. Do you, I, I'm getting the sense that maybe this is starting to happen. What are your thoughts on that? How optimistic or not are you? Well, I think it's it's much easier to have the conversation now. I think True. primarily because of the pandemic, where we've lost more people than in all the U.S. wars since World War II by a significant margin. Um, I think the climate crisis has been, you know, the consequences have been much clearer in the last few years with the storms, with the fires, uh, with, with all the different kind of, impacts of, of climate change coming home very directly. Uh, I think, you know, the, the rise of new uh, civil rights and racial justice movement has just underscored for people that a lot of people don't even feel safe in their own communities. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I think all those things could bode well for rethinking what it means to be safe, what it means to protect our country, what it means to build a safer world. Um, 
but the um, you know the, the tentacles of the arms lobby are, are stubborn. It's, it's hard to unpack that. Uh, but but I think we've got uh, we've got a fair chance at turning that around. Probably not in a year's time, but in right. in the in the years to come. Uh, and I think you know President Biden has done has taken some promising steps on yes. things like his climate plan and wanting to create a national public health force uh, on uh, a lot of the undoing of some of the damage of things yeah. like the Muslim ban and yeah. immigration crackdown and so forth. So now you get to things where he needs Congress, yeah. uh, like, like changing our budget priorities. Mm-hmm. And it looks like they're going to try to do a reconciliation process to right. get the stimulus through, which we could be done uh, circumventing the filibuster, and yeah. but but every Democrat would have to vote for it, and you know there's <sighs> going to be pressure to, to peel off some of those votes, uh, even one. Um, so, yeah, so I think even even if Biden were fully committed to this notion, which I don't think is the case, he'd have a lot of powerful forces that he would have to deal with. Yeah, for, um, for sure. One thing about democracy is there's people on both sides. And when one side moves ahead, the other side resists it. Well, this has been very interesting. If people are interested in reading more of uh, your work and finding out more about it, is there some way they can uh, do that on that Internet thing? Yes. Well, uh, Center for International Policy has a website, uh, internationalpolicy.org, uh-huh. and all of our press and analyses that can be found there. I write fairly often for Tom Dispatch, so I can uh-huh. be found on that website. Yes. I have a column at Forbes, uh-huh. uh, which is also uh, you know, a way to, to see uh, some of my analysis. So there's various ways to add it. I mean, even just often if you just Google my name, a lot of stuff will show up. So there, there's ways to add it. Uh, I mean, I, I tend to repeat myself, so I would warn people about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's all right. You're making the point. William D. Hartung. I guess they should uh, Google that, and they'll find you. Thank you so much, and uh, I have a sense of optimism, too, I must say. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my.